Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being with us this morning. Um, uh, my name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. And I'm just honored that you would come and, and join us um, for worship this morning. Uh, can we give our worship team a hand for leading us this morning? Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. What's Jeff breaking stuff back there? Yeah, you know, he shreds, so that happens. Well, hey, uh, four Sundays, I said earlier, four Sundays from now, our Christmas Eve services happen right here Sunday morning. Um, and in between today and that day, uh, we're doing a little series. Um, see if I name it right here, because we, we went back and forth. Uh, it, let's see the slide. Let's cheat here. Stories that put the, yeah, stories that put the mess in Messiah. Stories, there you go. Stories that put the mess in Messiah. Um, Because you actually don't have to look very far in the story of Jesus to see that lots of the stories connected to Jesus were very messy. In fact, especially if you look at his ancestry, his lineage, lots of mess going on. But as we'll see in some of the stories we're going to look at, this is actually a thing that God uses for good. These messy stories actually put God's heart on display for us. See, these messy stories, rather than being something that we might kind of shy away from or be embarrassed about or want to hide as skeletons in the closets, uh, instead, they are put out there for us to see because they put the heart of God on display. They reveal the heart of God. Now, I have to admit to you, um, when I think of lineages and genealogies, um, even though I've been reading the Bible for, for decades, when I get to a genealogy, I tend to kind of check out a little bit. Anybody else with me on that? Any confession this morning? Yeah, so, um, here, we're forgiven, there you go. So, uh, I remember going through like, you know, like, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year or two or whatever it takes, but you, you go through and you're like checking it off. And you guys tell me, if you get to a part in the reading where you have these long genealogies, do you have to read every word and still be able to check it off, or are you allowed to skate on that one? Who would say, like, skip it? Who would say, you better read the whole thing? Yeah, you are the people that actually did it and checked it off and you want to, so, all right. Yes, the name after the name and the name and a more name. (laughs) David skips that too. All right, David. That, that's, that's not a bad way to do it because, you know, sometimes we just want to go right past the genealogies and get to the heart of the story because they're not real easy to read, which is understandable. Um, but there's this curious thing that keeps getting my attention probably a few years ago when I thought, I'm just going to look deeper into some of this, where the actual the start of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, starts with a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I thought, why would he do that? And and I mean, I know some of the historical reasons, but then I started, this is my weird mind at work. Um, Yesterday, I started wondering, well, I wonder if we could look at genealogies like a different way, biblical genealogies, maybe even, stay with me, as romantic reading. Some of you are like, I'm really sorry for his wife right now, but just just stay with me here. I don't mean romantic reading in the sense of, you know, yes, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, the son of this, the son. I don't mean that. And hopefully, hopefully, though, there was some kind of romance going on for many generations that led to this person being born. I don't mean that, though. I mean romantic or romance in how particularly this genealogy in Matthew, how this genealogy reveals the heart of God. 
how Jesus' genealogy actually shows us something about God's heart. So who is God's heart for? And before we even get to the story, we look back in the story that leads up to the story of Jesus. And among other things, Matthew's genealogy lists women, which was unheard of in that day. Matthew's genealogy highlights kind of some outsiders, even some sketchy characters, even some folks from another people group in the genealogy who were sworn enemies of their people group. See, Matthew's genealogy does tell us who God cares about, about God's heart for the outsiders, which especially um, brings us, I think, to Ruth. Ruth is a character in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth, who we're going to talk about this morning, Ruth is the ultimate outsider. And even just kind of the fact that she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus, that in itself is just remarkable. Because in that patriarchal culture of the day, women were just not. It was the thing they just didn't list women in genealogies. So when Matthew here breaks the tradition and actually lists Four different women from the Old Testament era in his genealogy for Jesus. He's doing it on purpose. He's sending a message. He's sending the message that this story we're about to tell, this story, is not the same old story. And this story of Jesus is going to actually clear some things up. See, the arrival of Jesus announces a new day, a dawning of a new day for outsiders, Um, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' story is going to clarify for us um, who can belong, who can belong, who is allowed to be one of, who is welcomed as one of the people of God, who's in and who's out, who matters, who doesn't, who counts and who's excluded, who's the insider, who's the outsider. Those are the questions people often drew boundaries around in that day and ours, but Jesus makes it abundantly clear from the start that God's heart longs for all people to find their home in him. Which again is why Matthew specifically mentions an outsider like Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. In fact, when we get to the story of Ruth, over and over in the story in the book of Ruth, it's, it's almost like it's her last name, right? Ruth the Moabite. They say it over and over But Ruth, Ruth um, arrives on the scene a thousand years before Jesus. And again, she's a a Moabite. So before we get to Ruth, I just want to spend a couple minutes. um, Be good for us to understand a little bit about the people of Moab. And to do that, we have to rewind all the way back to the book of Genesis. And it starts with a scene um, with a guy named Abraham. Abraham and his nephew. Anybody know his nephew's name? Lot. His nephew, Lot. So very long story short, Abraham and Lot, they've got too much stuff in too small a space. Their servants are constantly fighting with each other. So they decide, between the two of them, they decide, all right, hey, listen, you choose to go one way and I'll go the other way. So Lot, the nephew, chooses to go to the city, the area where the city of Sodom was. And eventually, again, long story shorter, (laughs) that city is destroyed But he and his family escape. They flee, but his wife doesn't make it. And out of this situation, Lot's daughters fear they will never have uh, children. So they they get dad drunk. Did I mention this is a Bible story? Like, okay. You didn't teach that in there this morning in the kids? No, okay, we're good. 
We're good. We're good on that. All right. So um, the children born from this um, incest, they become a new tribe. They become the people that are known as Moab. That's the start of Moab. They're, they're looked down on, maybe kind of, I don't know, the equivalent somebody suggested was, well, maybe they're kind of like we would think of hillbillies today with a really strange family tree. Um, I have a friend. Um, he's from Arkansas. His wife is from Texas. And, and, and she said, well, hey, my family in Texas, we're a bunch of rednecks. But his family, they're hillbilly, which I wasn't sure which one was like better than the other, you know? So, I don't know. So, um, so she explained to me the simple difference in her view um, between a hillbilly and a redneck had to do with the family tree. So she said, rednecks, rednecks have branches on their family tree, but on the family tree of a hillbilly, there ain't no branch. The tree don't fork. So <laughs> some of you will get that later. Um, Casey's from the South. He'll draw you a picture of the family tree if you need it. But there you go. Um, this is Moab. This is Moab. This is how they're seen and treated. They're mocked. They're ridiculed. They're despised all the way from the start back in Genesis. And people don't think too highly of them. And I'm sure they respond in kind. And the next time we hear from these people in, of, of Moab, um, it's going to be in the time of Moses and the children of Israel. And by then, they are the enemies, the sworn enemies of the nation, the people of Israel. In fact, it's gotten so bad between those two uh, groups that uh, by the time Moses gives the law in Deuteronomy 23, Moses tells the people, verse 3 of Deuteronomy 23, no Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the assembly of the Lord, like to become one of the people of God, may, they may, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation, which is not saying, okay, but by the 11th generation, they can enter. No, this is a way of saying back in the day, um, the 10th generation, it's like saying we are never, ever, ever getting back together like ever. Like ever, right? So this is Moab, um, bitter enemies who the people of Israel look down on and have banished forever. Now, that gets us to the book of Ruth and the story, and I'm going to summarize a lot of it um, as we go because there's too much to fit in, but uh, the story of the book of Ruth, it centers around a mother of an Israelite family in Bethlehem, and her name is Naomi, and she has a husband, and two sons, and because of a famine they had in Israel, uh, Naomi and her husband, their two sons, they leave Bethlehem. They travel about 100 miles to the land of Moab where there was plenty to eat. So they escape the crisis of famine, but then, very suddenly, Naomi's husband dies. So Naomi's two sons, um, they end up marrying Moabite women. The names are Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi now has hope for, for grandchildren, but it says 10 years later, there are no grandchildren. About 10 years later, one son dies, and then the other son dies. There are no grandchildren. And in this ancient world that was run by men, women were at the mercy of these patriarchal systems. So now here she is, and here are her daughters-in-law. No husband, no sons. And so it seems as if all hope is lost. 
Naomi at this point realizes there's just nothing left for her in Moab. She hears that the famine in Israel is over, so she decides she's going to return home to Bethlehem. Now at first, both of her daughter-in-laws, who are Moabites, they start the journey to Israel with Naomi. And in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8, we read, Then Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, I'm sorry, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your own mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all wept aloud. But they said to her, the daughters-in-law said to her, no, no, we will go back with you to your people, right? They're saying, no, no, Naomi, we're going to stay with you. And uh, I'll just summarize the next part. Naomi just insists, listen, she says, essentially, listen, hey, <laughs> even though I'm going home, it's, it's hopeless for me. There's no need to drag you into this. Besides, you are Moabites, and I don't think that our people will necessarily treat you well. So just go home to your families. At least you might have a second chance at life in Moab. And, and the one daughter-in-law tearfully takes her up on this offer to leave, sheds tears, kisses Naomi goodbye forever. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, Ruth's persistent. She's a little more maybe even stubborn. She clings to Naomi. And then we have one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry in the entire Bible. Um, Her words right here, verse 16, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will there be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever severely, if even death separates you and me. In verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her, stopped saying, no, no, we need to separate So, verse 19, they arrive in Bethlehem, the two two women, Naomi and daughter-in-law, Ruth. Um, They go on now, they arrive in Bethlehem, and then the whole town, it says, was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? It's like they don't even recognize her. It's been a long time, and so much has happened. Could this be Naomi, is what the townswomen are asking? And she answers this way in verse 20, she says, don't... Don't call me Naomi. And the word, the name Naomi means pleasant in Hebrew. Don't call me pleasant. She told them, call me Mara. And Mara in Hebrew means bitter. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Just pause there for a moment um, and just point out that, you know, not everything that's said in the Bible by the characters of the Bible reflects the heart of God, the will of God, and the workings of God, and I believe this is one of those places. This is not a verse you take and go, yes, God's done that to me. It's a lament, yes. See, Naomi's life is indeed tragic. She gets home, just imagine, like all her friends see her, she's not the same, she's devastated, And she blames, Naomi blames God. She says, this is God's doing. Now, 
I got to tell you, I'm so grateful that God doesn't get offended or punish us for the things that we blame on him. Aren't you, aren't you glad? <laughs> See, I do think, though, that, that when we hold this assumption that some folks hold, they hold the assumption that, that the pain in our life was actually caused by God, when we do that, we just cloud our own vision. Like, we cannot see clearly the goodness of God's heart when we are sure that God is to blame for what's happened. Um, you know, God doesn't pull away from us when we blame him. But I know this. If I think that God is that kind of God, I tend to pull away from God. So he doesn't go anywhere, but I tend to pull away. Or at least I think if we don't pull away, we tend to see him as harsh or hard. And what we actually need in those moments, we need to lean into the mercy, the grace, the comfort of God. That's what we need, and we're the ones that just push him away. Before we move on in the story, I just want to share one sentence about this from a pastor named Brian Zond. He says this, In times of great pain, don't be too quick to assume that your story has been fully told. In times of great pain, don't be too quick to assume that your story has been fully told. And indeed, this story with Ruth and Naomi, this story is far from over. So we pick the story back up and they get to Bethlehem. And in order to survive in Bethlehem, Ruth begins to scrounge grain in the fields because they are destitute. They need something. And this is a provision that was made in the law um, to help protect and provide for the poor in Israel. Like, the law was you are not allowed to harvest all your crops in your field. you got to leave some, so like leave the corners of the fields. Don't pick there. Um, uh, if some grain falls off the wagon, you know, you can't pick it up. And the reason that this was there was one way of providing for the poor so that they would have something to be able to eat. It was part of just caring for the poor. It was... Uh, one way that God's heart was reflected for the poor. So that's what Ruth does. There she, she fits the category. She's poor. She goes to glean in the fields around the town of Bethlehem. And perchance, she ends up in the field of a prominent, middle-aged, probably wealthy man, because he owns some land, um, and his name is Boaz. Ruth, this young widow, she catches the eye of Boaz, and there begin in the story here to be hints of romance. Ruth chapter 2, verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, so I guess that's the guy that could probably count um, in the crew. He, he says this. He asks, whose young woman is this? Wh whose woman is this? Now, if you underline stuff in your Bible, underline that question because that question is the fundamental question of the whole book. Whose woman is this? In other words... Say it this way, who is she? Who is she? she mainly a Moabite to be despised? Is she a, a stranger to disregard? Is she? She damaged goods, which is how that patriarchal system, that culture would have seen her. See, the patriarchal Jewish audience of the day would immediately assume in this story of Ruth that, that Ruth has three strikes against her. 
And by the way, these are bad assumptions that Jesus will challenge, that other parts of Scripture challenge, but it's just the way they saw things in that day, especially before Jesus. They would have all gone, most of them anyway. Uh, this Ruth, yeah, she's got three strikes, right? Strike one, she's a Moabite, right? Over and over through the book of Ruth, like I mentioned earlier, she is called Ruth the Moabites, um, which probably every time someone from the people of Israel read that phrase, it caused a little twinge, a little trigger, a little discomfort, but, 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 but she's called that just probably so we don't forget that she is from a people group that the Israelites regarded as cursed enemy people that they believed were rejected by God, they believed forever. So strike one, she's a Moabite. Strike two, um, she's widowed. Which, again, in that culture, and this is exasperating, this is so bizarre, but some people in that day, in that culture, especially the elite, would have regarded her as used goods in that culture. Not how God would see it, not how Jesus would see, but that's how they saw it. Strike two is that. Strike three, she's poor. (laughs) She's poor. Which, again, too many of them wrongly interpreted someone who's poor. Well, that's God's judgment. That person's poor because God's judging them. That's how they interpreted it too often. So here you go. You've got these three strikes against Ruth according to what most people would believe in that day. So if they heard, who is she? Their answer probably would be, well, yeah, she's a widowed Moabite woman who's impoverished. That's it. Big deal. Move along. And by the way, she's got those three strikes, but (laughs) I'm guessing that Ruth probably, when Boaz spots her, she's probably not like looking her best in this scene, right? She's like rummaging through the weeds, looking for food. Her face is oily and grimy. Her dress is probably all dirty and sweaty. Like, that's, I'm guessing that's not how, I'm not a female, but I'm guessing that's at least how most girls don't want to look when they're going to meet a guy, right? Like, Lots of ladies, uh, if they knew they were maybe perhaps meeting Mr. Perfect, they don't want to be all slimy and, and grimy, dumpster diving for food. So that's where she's at when he sees her, asks this question. But here's the point, I think, in this. She is not the picture of external attractiveness and, and beauty. She's not the picture of, of this woman with everything going for her. But hear me. Right here, Boaz, Boaz represents a different kind of man in Israel. Boaz is giving us a picture of God's love, of how, of how God sees us. So who is she? Whose woman is this? Who is she? No, no, she's not cursed. She's not used good. She's not judged by God. She and we are loved by God just as we are. Just as we are. See, friends, Boaz is this amazing, cool picture of the love of God because God loves us with a redeeming love, a redeeming love. See, in Christ, the unloved are loved, the poor are restored, the inheritance is reclaimed, and the forsaken find a place to belong That is how God loves. So back to our story. Finally, uh, Naomi, the mother-in-law, and I'm summarizing this really like compact. There's so much here, right? Naomi decides to press the issue and suggest kind of a risky, risque 
moved, and she sends Ruth all dressed up in her finest at night to break another of the customs of the day, um, essentially to see if Boaz would be interested in proposing and marrying uh, her. Um, and again, there's way too more. There's way more than I can cover this morning. And this romance story here, it's rich with meaning and hope. So, so I encourage you this week, just read it. It's four quick chapters. But, but here, here's the summary. In the end, what happens is that Boaz became what they called in their culture the kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. So a relative, that's the kin, um, he marries then Ruth, takes in the widow Naomi, and he redeems their story, and they are outsiders no more. They have been redeemed. Here's how Ruth chapter 4 verse 13 describes it. Boaz then took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord granted her conception, and she bore a son. Then Naomi took the child and placed him in her lap and cared for him. Grand, grandmas are the best, right? This is, I love that right there. And they named him Obed, right? So Obed. Okay, so uh, what does Obed do? Well, the book of Ruth, actually, if you go and look at the end of chapter 4, it ends with the genealogy. Here's the end of the romantic story. And Obed became the father, it does the longer line, but it says, and Obed became the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, Obed was famous in Israel for one thing, for being the grandfather of he who would become King David. Now, now listen, track this, which means that if Obed is the grandfather of King David, that means Ruth the Moabites is the great-grandmother of King David. And that's how the redemption story of Ruth ends. For a while, anyway. For a while. See, the next mention of Ruth in the Bible doesn't happen for, as we said earlier, about a thousand years, and it pops up in the genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'll start there. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and so on. I'm not going to read them all, and it goes all the way through here. We'll skip down to verse 5, and we pick up with Salmon, the father of Boaz, who was the interesting, mention a female here, whose mother was Rahab. There's another scandal for another sermon right there. Um, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And again, like I said earlier, there are very few women mentioned in genealogy, but Ruth is one of the four mentioned. It goes on, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and the, Jesse, the father of, and right here, he inserts a word that is not the same as was in the genealogy in Ruth. The father of King David. Right, so he uses the same, Matthew uses the same genealogy as Ruth, but he throws in a few important details about the mothers and the scandals and the outsiders and calls him King David. Because <laughs> Jesus is from the kingly line is what he's drawing the correlation to. So Matthew here, he, he has these clear lines, who begat who, but to make sure he that nobody misses it this time, because in the other genealogy, after a time, you could have forgotten that Ruth was involved. 
So they wrote a whole book about her, and still they were being treating the outsiders, they were treating the Moabites as outsiders, they were treating others as outsiders. So to make sure, Matthew makes sure they don't miss the point this time, highlights Ruth's name, that Ruth is not just King David's great-grandmother, Ruth is, is the Moabite grandmother in the great, 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 great times 28 grandmother of Jesus Christ. And he's doing all of this to highlight this important thing that God has a heart for outsiders. God has a heart for outsiders. See, the whole book of Ruth was supposed to show the people of Israel that that Israel was called to love others, especially outsiders, in response to the love God had for them. In fact, that word redemption, the redemption word is used 23 times in Ruth's four short chapters. And then by comparison, the work of the gospel of Jesus is all about redemption as well. And now we, we outsiders who are now followers of Jesus, we are the people of God. We are the people of God. So the Ruth book, this book of Ruth, was not just an invitation to them back then. This is now, since we are the people of God, an invitation to us, for us to be sure that we see the outsider, that we see the other with the eyes of Jesus. Which is why that central question of the story is summed up in what I said earlier from Ruth 2, verse 5. Who's Young woman, is she? Who is she? Who is she? And our question, our question needs to be the same question we ask about the people in our lives, in our world. Who are, who are they really? Who, who, who are they really? Just think about the outsiders around us today. Um, very specifically connected to this story. Uh, how about the refugee or the immigrant back then? But who, who are they really today? Are refugees, are immigrants, um, are they mainly to us a problem to be dealt with? Or are they people made in the image of God who Jesus died to save and has put in our lives for us to demonstrate love and redemption? Listen, I realize, like, the government has all its own questions about refugees and about immigration and about the border, and I want to pray for our governmental leaders to make wise decisions, great. But as followers of Jesus, we, our primary allegiance, our primary citizenship does not belong to our nation. Our primary allegiance is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God of heaven. So, by the way, if you're not a Christian, this totally does not apply to you. You are off the hook. (laughs) But as followers of Jesus, no matter what my or your political preferences are, when refugees show up down the street from us or in our city or in our state, what is our job as a follower of Jesus? What's even our job as a a church, the people of God? Like, like when immigrants arrive in our city, what is our calling— According to scripture, I'm not coming up with something new. According to scripture, what is our calling as the people of God? See, according to the scriptures, 
Our calling is to love. This is hard for me too sometimes, but regardless of how they got here, our calling is to love, to look for ways to bring redemption. How does that apply to, you know, I don't like the single mom um, or the young woman who had an abortion. Like, okay, we look at her, who is she? Who is she? Is she an example of somebody, you know, we'd hold up to go, oh, don't be, don't, don't be like that person. Or is she someone that Jesus cares about? Has never, Jesus has never stopped loving her. Is she someone that Jesus gave his precious blood on the cross to redeem? And therefore, she's someone that we need to find a way to demonstrate God's redeeming love to as well. How about the orphan? The kid in the foster system, or, or maybe even I picture a young man at the Naomi house on the Navajo Nation land. Picture this young boy, and I ask, whose, whose son is, who is he? Whose son really is he? Who is he? is he? Is he just somebody to put in a category and cast aside a sad statistic? Or is he and those in similar plight, are they children who are made in the image of God? who we as followers of Jesus, as the people of God, are invited to look for ways to love and serve and bring redemption to their stories. See, people of hope, we are invited, invited, not forced, not should, not demand. We are invited to partner with God in bringing redemption to our broken world. See, those who have been redeemed, that's us, those who have been redeemed by Jesus are invited to become redeemers of others. So that would look like a place and being a people where the unloved are loved, the poor are restored, the family that was divided comes together, the inheritance that was lost is returned, bitterness becomes sweet, and outsiders, outsiders find a place to belong. See, that's the theme (laughs) of the book of Ruth. It's actually the theme all throughout the Bible. It is the heart of the gospel and God's message of redemption to you and me as well. See, in his coming and in his ministry here on earth, Jesus clears up the questions of who's in and who's out, who matters, who doesn't, of who counts, who's excluded, of who's the insider and who's the outsider. Jesus clears all that up once and for all. So even though there was confusion before and they could ignore all these other things, now there is no confusion. And Jesus ends the scriptures in the book of Revelation with this invitation saying, whosoever will may come. So who's welcome in the people of God, in the family of God, whosoever. That's anyone may come. I just love it that God sees us the way that Boaz saw Ruth. That God just loves us, you and me, just as we are. It wasn't even that God was like, well, I really love this future version of who I'm going to predict that eventually one day Doug might become. No, 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 no. He loves us right now, just as you are, even in your brokenness, even in your sin, even in your pain. You are loved 
just as you are. And so if you feel like an outcast or an outsider, I believe Jesus would speak these words, words like this Jesus would speak to you. He would say, you matter to me. Your heart can find a home in me. Or maybe you feel used up, washed out, worn out, cast out. I believe Jesus would say words like this to you. He would want you to know this. My heart, my heart, he would say, is for you. Just as you are, I come to redeem and restore you. See, the gift of Jesus, the good news gospel that Jesus came to bring, the gospel, it's not that God favors the insider or that God rewards the best behaved or the most religiously strict and observant or those who come from the proper family setting. No, no, no. The gospel is actually summed up in Isaiah 55 with this invitation, come who everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Just come. And you and I can be redeemed. <laughs> whatever you've done whatever has been done to you, whatever you're hiding, whatever you're afraid of, whatever you don't want anyone to know or the skeleton in your own closet or your family's closet, you can be redeemed. Those destroyed relationships can be redeemed. That messed up career decision you made, it can be redeemed. Your strained financial situation or your emotional chaos of you or your family or those around you, God's not telling you, hey, just listen, you fix that and then I'll reward you. He's not saying that. He's saying, come to me. Come to me in your mess, says Jesus, and I will redeem you. See, that's the good news for the messy. For the outsider, for those who can kind of relate to Ruth, the good news, Jesus is for you. So, however you are, just come. Worship team, will you come? read that passage from Isaiah again. This is an invitation. This was even before Jesus came, and it tells the good news in such a beautiful way. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat without money, without cost. Just come. Is anybody thirsty this morning? Does anybody want more of the redemption that God offers to you? Or maybe you're ready to begin to bring that same redemption to those around you. Are you thirsty for more this morning? Do you want to be a part of the table? 
where everyone is welcome. That's our invitation. I don't know specifically what it will mean for you, and so as we sing, just open your heart and just say yes to Jesus. Just come however you are. Just come to Jesus and come as you are.